from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. John the Beloved writes, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Philip said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise, and we give you thanks for today. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our uh, beds and into the gathered worship with your bride here this morning at Christ Community Church. Lord, even though it's cold, we thank you for the cold, and we thank you for your mercies and the change in seasons. Lord, we thank you for our worship today, Lord, that you have given us. Lord, we thank you, Father, for our worship through song and through liturgy and confession. Lord, we thank you for hearing your word read and taught this morning in Sunday school and read and proclaimed aloud here this morning in worship. And we pray, God, as we continue to worship you, Lord, through hearing your word read and proclaimed, Lord, hearing uh, and coming to the table, Lord, and making thanks for what Christ has done and through more singing and confession, Lord, we pray, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, I would like to begin with um, what I think is interesting personal trivia, right? So it means it's personal to me and I'm being super selfish and it's not as interesting to you as it is to me, but it's interesting. But here's the interesting trivia. This is not the first time that I have taught and preached on this text. Now, why is that interesting? Let me make it applicable to Christ's community. This is not the first time that I've taught and preached this text here. In fact, here's the even more interesting part. This is the very first text that I ever preached on at Christ Community Church. Three years ago, this weekend. So, I was talking to Sharon about this this week, cause, and, and I was even talking to Craig about it, because I was struggling with this. And the struggle was that it was very, very tempting to just reuse that same message from three years ago, right? Um, but, seeing as I actually referenced a sermon from a few weeks prior to that week that Pastor Dennis gave, I thought it should probably be a good idea that I work on this one and edit it some and change a few things, right? So I did really study the text. I'm not just reusing that sermon from three years ago. Um, but this text, this is honestly one of my favorite texts in the Gospels because it gives us a beautiful glimpse into the personality of our Lord, 
So, in fact, after that sermon three years ago, Connor actually recommended to me a great book by a guy named John Eldridge uh, that's called Beautiful Outlaw. And that book explores the personality of Jesus through the gospel text. It's a great book. We might have a copy in the library, but if not, I've got a copy, and it's easy to find online. I recommend it to anybody. It's a great book. But here in John chapter 1, what we get really is a bit of the playful personality of Christ, but also the sense of humor of Christ, especially in his comments to Nathaniel. So again, you know, as, as we looked at this, you know, we read, like, Nathaniel gives this snarky quip, right, to Philip. He's like, can anything, really, Philip, like, are you pulling my leg, right? Can anything good come from a backwater, know-nothing hamlet like Nazareth? And so then, you know, if you can imagine it, Right? We, you can almost picture, you know, Philip, come and see, and he and Nathaniel get up and they leave, and they, they head toward where Jesus and the other disciples are. And So you can almost imagine Jesus sitting with the other disciples, and he sees Philip and Nathaniel coming from far off, and he leans over to Peter, and he nudges him in the ribs, and he says, hey, check this out, watch this. And so he gets up, and he sees Nathaniel, and he says, now, now there's a guy, there's a guy that's a real Israelite. He's not deceitful, he has no guile, some of our translations might read. Nathaniel truly appears as he is. He speaks his mind, he tells it like it is. Of course, at this point, the other disciples are giggling, you know, they're kind of chuckling in the background. But then you can almost picture Jesus embracing Nathaniel in this moment and then welcoming him in. He's teasing him, but he's welcoming him in. And this is why I love this scene. Because it shows us just how intimately Jesus knows and understands each and every one of us. He understands our fears. He understands our questions. He even understands our hesitancies and our doubts about him, which is why he says this about Nathaniel. And even though he understands those things, he loves us anyway. But this text also is really fun because it draws our attention to really what I would consider the main theme of the season of Epiphany, which is what we are in right now, which is the theme of come and see. So for those who might be new among us, or those that um, have never heard this type of liturgical worship style before, or been a part of it, Epiphany is a season that we are reminded of how Jesus is manifested, right? how he has been brought to light, this is what the word means, or how he has been made evident to be the Christ that has come from God. So a few weeks ago, on the Feast of the Epiphany, on January 6th, we celebrated his Epiphany, his Revealing to the Magi, the Gentiles. Last week, as Walton preached on the baptism of our Lord, we remembered and celebrated Jesus manifested as the Christ to his own people. When coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him and the Father audibly speaks over him and affirms his identity as his Christ. So we'll notice this theme of come and see throughout the rest of the season. We'll celebrate it in his ministry. We'll even see it in his healing of the sick. And especially as we end the season with his transfiguration, we will see Christ revealed as the Christ. (laughs) Jesus revealed as the Christ. But today, we get to just have fun and explore this playful but very important scene in the life of Jesus. Because we here are invited, like Nathaniel, to simply come and see. So let's come and see. So as creatures, right, I mean, we are all created beings, we can fully comprehend that we experience life through our senses. It's very cold today. It's going to get colder today and get cold tonight and cold tomorrow, at least for those of us that aren't used to the cold. For those of us in the room that are used to the cold, this might just be comfortable, right? 
one person in the room I'm staring at, and she knows what I'm talking about. But, but it's cold today. We experience life through our senses. Right? There's a reason why our memories are so vivid when we smell something familiar cooking in the kitchen. There's a reason why we engage our whole senses and our whole bodies in worship by standing at certain points or kneeling at certain points like we will do when we come to the table or bowing our heads in prayer or even sitting like we are right now. Part of me kind of wishes it was like the old days and I could sit and you guys could stand because that's how teaching used to be done. But it is what it is. But these physical postures in worship remind us that we have been created to experience worship and to be active participants in worship. We are not meant to be inactive bystanders that show up for entertainment. Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, preaching in the 1800s in London, he proclaimed this one time, he said, The devil has so seldom done a cleverer thing than to hint to the church that part of her mission was to provide entertainment for the purpose of winning souls. He says, providing entertainment and amusement is nowhere spoken of in Scripture as a function of the church. He said, instead, the need is doctrine. And doctrine so understood and so felt that it sets our hearts afire. So what Epiphany does for us, what this theme of come and see does for us here that we find in John 1, is that it helps us to comprehend and to appreciate that Christ and the worship of Christ is meant to be experienced. Jesus is, wants us to experience him in order to set our hearts afire for him and for the kingdom of heaven. And to prove all of this, all we really need is John's gospel, right? which is best approached thematically because John is not concerned with chronological order of, of events. And we see this particularly in chapter 1, which this section finishes out. But in chapter 1... We can quickly and easily note, especially in the prologue, these themes of light and sight, which play into the theme of come and see. In verse 35, which is in the section right before this, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it there, but in verse 35, Jesus calls the first disciples. And it's here that we are given really an inkling of this sight and light that's found in the theme of come and see. Because we read here in verse 35 that two of the disciples who follow John the Baptist, get up and stop following him, and they start following after Jesus. And so he notices it, and he turns around, and he says in verse 39, he says, that, well, he turns around and he says, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he, so he says to them in verse 39, he says, come and see. This is the very same thing that Philip offers to Nathaniel in verse 46, which is in our text. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip, you've got to be kidding. You know what? Come with me. Come and see. But interestingly here, in verses 35 all the way through 51 in these two sections, John records for us that Jesus and Philip use two different Greek words in these exchanges. The phrases in English are the same, but in Greek they're totally different. In verse 39, Jesus uses a Greek word that is pronounced horao, which means to see or to appear or even more fitting for epiphany to become visible. Kind of like light, right? Light makes things visible. This is the exact same Greek word that John uses in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he writes, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever had God made visible to them. 
but Christ has made God known. Christ has brought God to light. And so what Jesus is doing in this exchange with these disciples is also inviting us to come and to see himself so that he can become visible to us. But in verse 46, which is in our bulletins, Philip uses a different Greek word. This is the Greek word pronounced adon, which means to perceive or to consider or even to observe. So what Philip is inviting Nathaniel to do is to come and to perceive or to observe this Jesus of Nazareth. So we could almost reread this like this. Philip says, look, we, we found this guy who we think is the Christ. <laughs> I think he's the Christ. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Philip says, okay, sure, man. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he says, look, just come with me and observe this guy with me. Spend a little time with me with him and see if you don't also perceive that he is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. That's what, how we could read this. But then we notice, again, Nathaniel's response, right? He says here in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse 46, he's not initially buying what Philip is selling. Right? He's not picking up what Philip is laying down. And again, he says, can anything really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You've got to be kidding. But what Jesus does, and this again is one of the many reasons why this is such a great text, what Jesus does is he uses Nathaniel's skepticism, quote-unquote, to help reveal that he is the Christ. And he does so by drawing upon the testimony of Scripture itself. Now, John doesn't give us any cross-references here, so we have to know our Bible to know this. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to give you the cross-reference. Keep your thumb in John chapter 1 and make your way all the way back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 28. Craig already knows where I'm going. Because he's been teaching us Genesis all on Wednesday nights. But while you're turning there, let me read to you this conversation between Jesus and Nathanael. Again, we will read that passage in Genesis 28 in a minute. So again, starting in verse 46, Nathanael says to Philip again, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and, come and observe. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him again, I imagine chuckling a little bit. Now you believe? Okay, okay. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? Well, you are going to see so many more greater things than these, Nathanael. You will see heaven opened up, and you will see angels descending and descending upon the Son of Man. So we, we're tempted, and I, and I fall into this category all the time, we're, we're tempted to, to give Nathaniel just as hard a time for his quote-unquote skepticism as we are to give Thomas a hard time for his quote-unquote doubting the resurrection. But the fathers understood this differently. And I really think this is part of the reason why the Spirit inspired John to write this and why John kept it in his gospel. Chrysostom notes here this. He says that Jesus, what Jesus is doing in this statement, particularly by calling him an Israelite, is he's praising Nathanael for diligently and honestly seeking after the Messiah. Another commentator writes here, he says, what Jesus saw when Nathanael was coming toward him, what he adoned, it's the same word, what he perceived, what he observed, was more than just another inquiring follower 
but he observed a seeker of God. Meaning that Nathaniel at least knew enough scripture to know that the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote was not supposed to come from Nazareth, which is why he said what he said. The Christ was supposed to come from Bethlehem. This is what he knew. And so because Nathanael's mind was already thinking on Scripture, Jesus keeps it there. And he uses the testimony of Scripture to prove that he is the Messiah. And so we read in Genesis 28, where we read about Jacob, right? Who was renamed Israel. The the phrase Israelite is not incidental here in John 1. So in this scene, for those that may not be familiar, what has happened? Jacob has been sent away by his mother and father to his uncle Laban because he has really, really angered his brother Esau. He has stolen the inheritance. Esau's a little mad, right? Esau is killing mad, as they would say in a good Western, right? So he is so mad. So Jacob is on his way to his uncle Laban. And we read this starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, using a stone as a pillow. No need to judge. He's doing what he's doing, right? And so he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of God, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to the, into this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. All right, keep your thumb there, or grab your bulletin, so that way you've got John 1 in front of you, and make your way back to John 1. We're going to go back to Genesis 28 in a second, but I want you to keep your thumb there. So at face value, right, reading this story, Connecting it, or at the very least, comparing these two, it seems like that connection really is only in that last sentence of John chapter, chapter 1. Right? You will see the angels of God, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is the connection. But it actually starts way back earlier, when Jesus initially and playfully announces Nathanael's arrival by calling Nathanael an Israelite. What Jesus is doing is he is immediately connecting those dots all the way back to Genesis. And he's proclaiming, not only to Nathanael, but even to the other disciples who can hear, that Nathanael is not a deceiver like Jacob from before him. But Nathanael is instead a true seeker of God. Now we can say this about Jacob to a point, but that was not always evident for Jacob. We learned this this past Wednesday in our Genesis study. study. During our Wednesday night evening study, Craig has pointed out to us particularly that multiple times Jacob took a very, very, very long time to not only buy into the promise that God makes here, but also to even claim Yahweh as his God. Constantly, he's saying, 
Yahweh, the God of my father, right? He's not saying Yahweh, my God. It isn't until Genesis 46 that we looked at this past week that I think it's really that might be the first time when Jacob is 130 years old that he finally responds to Yahweh in submission. He says, Jacob, and he finally says, here I am. Right? He doesn't do anything else. He just says, I'm finally here. There's no more bargaining with Jacob at this point. There's no more deception with Jacob at this point. But Nathaniel, against his better judgment, he listens to his friend Philip. And he goes to observe this Nazarene and to see if he might be the Christ. Because with Nathaniel, there is no pretense. With Nathaniel, what you see is what you get. He is a true Israelite. He is seeking after God. And Jesus understands this about Nathaniel. Just again, as he understands this about each and every one of us and what motivates us and what stirs us up. And so he tells him, again, I imagine him chuckling here. He says, look, you are going to see so many more greater things than me seeing you under a fig tree long before Philip showed up with you. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see heaven opened up. And you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. This entire statement is meant to echo Jacob's vision of Genesis 28. But, but what Jesus does is he uses this imagery to make a necessary and very important distinction. Jacob only saw, he only perceived, a shadow of the ladder of God. But in Jesus, the disciples, the church, the world, are able to perceive, to aid on, the substance of the ladder that has been made visible for us, that has been harrowed for us in Christ Jesus himself. Our Orthodox friends get right to the point, and they state this. They say, Jesus is the ladder that unites heaven and earth. And so here in John 151, what Jesus does is he equates himself with Jacob's ladder, and he does it in two ways in this verse. First, he tells the disciples, because this word you here at the beginning of verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you, both of these are plural. So he's not just speaking to Nathaniel, he's speaking to all of them. He says, truly, truly, or thus saith the Lord, would be a better way to interpret that in the New Testament. You will see heaven opened. In the Hebrew, this is where it really kind of gets a lot of fun if you're not having fun already. In the Hebrew, this term ladder is better interpreted as steps, like a flight of stairs, right? So, what Jacob would have seen, look at you, what Jacob would have seen would have been something like a ziggurat, right? Connor, this is why I'm looking at him, has discussed this ziggurat imagery as we've made our way through Isaiah over the course of Sunday school this year, this past year. In the ancient mind, if you can try to imagine this, right, if you can try to pull yourself out of 2024, post-enlightenment, post, I don't know, modern, whatever type of crazy world we live in right now, if you could take yourself back multiple thousands of years, for the ancient mind, they would have understood a ziggurat as the point of connection between heaven and earth. The place where God comes down to meet with mankind. And so what Jesus is doing here by equating himself with Jacob's ladder or Jacob's ziggurat is placing himself in that position. That point where heaven and earth meet. Or that point where Psalm 85 tells us where righteousness and peace kiss each other. But interestingly here in verse 51, Jesus returns to that exact same word that he used with Andrew and the other disciple, who was probably Philip, back in the section before this one. 
It's no longer Adon. It's no longer perceive. You will not perceive heaven opened. You will harrow. It will become visible to you. You will see it opened. This verb is used throughout John's gospel regularly to promise the faithful that the things of God will be made visible to us or will be made manifest to us or, to use our term, will be an epiphany to us. So here what Jesus is promising in in this verse is that what we have in him and what we have in his work and what we have in his entire person is God totally and completely made visible to us because Jesus is heaven opened up. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 17, if you've still got your thumb there, again, Jacob says this. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In John chapter 10, Jesus proclaims that he is two things. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. But he's also the gate or the door into the sheepfold. He says... I am the door of the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus becomes the interpretive key to the mystery of Jacob's ladder. Only now Jacob's ladder is radically redefined in the person of Christ. Jacob saw a vision, but the disciples saw the word made flesh. Jesus is the one who reveals. He is the one who harouses, who makes the Father known. In John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus will declare that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Or, to use a different term, whoever Jesus has been made visible to has also had the Father made visible to them. This is what Jesus invites us into. He invites us here to look upon him as the ladder into heaven, and to rightly perceive and understand who the Father is. To rightly adon and harrow the Father. But Jesus also states in this verse that upon him, the doorway into heaven, that angels will ascend and descend out of heaven. So what Jesus is telling these, these disciples here is not merely, he's not merely referring to the appearances of the angels that heralded his birth. Nor is he talking about the angels that ministered to him in the wilderness after his fast and his temptation with the devil. Or it's not, he's not all even referencing those that will later herald his resurrection. But what he's doing is by equating himself with Jacob's ladder, he is revealing that he alone is the way to go up and to meet the Father. Calvin, the reformer, writes here, he states this. He says, Christ is the medium through which the fullness of all heavenly blessings flow down to us and through which we, in turn, ascend to God. According to Augustine, what Jesus is doing here is revealing his divinity in a very beautiful way. Because when Jacob wakes up, as you read there in Genesis 28, when he wakes up from his dream, he takes the stone upon which he had chosen as a pillow and he pours oil on it and renames the place Bethel, which means the house of God. This is no coincidence. In the incarnation, God has made his divine presence known on earth more fully than he ever did to Jacob in his dream. By the Son taking on flesh and setting up his dwelling among us, the stone that Jacob rested his head 
is the Christ that the builders rejected. The oil that he pours over the stone is the Holy Spirit that descends on Christ in his baptism. In his incarnation, Christ is our ladder into heaven. By his cross, Christ is our ladder out of death. And in his victorious resurrection, Christ is our ladder to the Father. In Christ, God is made visible and he is made known. In Christ, we have the way out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so the mission of the church, then here's the application if you need it, if you weren't already finding application already at this point. For the church, our mission can easily be summed up with this phrase, come and see. Advent and Christmastide remind us that God has come down in broken humanity, to broken humanity in the person of Jesus. But in Epiphany, like Nathaniel, we get to be invited to come and to see and to personally experience the manifestation of the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Epiphany, we are to invite others to come and to see and to perceive and to experience and to observe and bear witness about Christ. And here's the thing about to come and see, because this can seem very simple, and so it can make it very complicated almost. Some things that are too simple are too complicated. Come and see doesn't mean that we have arrived at a complete understanding or even a full comprehension. But instead, come and see means that we place ourselves in a posture of discipleship, in a posture of learning from and of wrestling with and of following and of being like Christ. To come and see is to be at a place where we can perceive Jesus and to allow him to make himself visible to us and to make the Father visible to us. And come and see is also, it's not a completed task. It's not something that we can finish. But rather, it's an ongoing perseverance of the Christian. Because come and see is the work of discipleship, but it's also the work of sanctification. Those who endure to the end will be saved, Jesus tells us in John, um, Matthew chapter 10. Come and see is also the conviction of the believer that they hold firmly throughout their life and at the end of their life when they know their work is accomplished. Come and see then serves as the summary of what it means to be a believer in Christ. So this morning, beloved of Jesus, come to the table and come and see. Amen. Amen.